Hello and welcome to Euromoney at COP26. My name is Lucy Fitzgeorge Parker. I'm the editor for Sustainable Finance at Euromoney magazine, and I'm your host for this podcast, in which I'll be bringing you news and views from the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. We're now on day two, and at a policy level, it looks as though COP26 has got off to a pretty good start. The meeting of world leaders has produced some big announcements. India has pledged to get to net zero at some point in the fairly distant future. More than 100 countries have vowed to work together to prevent and reverse deforestation. A similar number have signed up to the Global Methane Pledge, and the US has rejoined the high ambition coalition of countries looking to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Meanwhile, those of us on the ground are gradually working out how to navigate the often frustrating logistics of the conference, much of which seems to have been organised in such secrecy that even those most closely involved have no idea what's going on. Indeed, after 24 hours of COVID testing, being endlessly redirected around security barriers that run for literally miles and queuing in the cold for accreditation, it was a very pleasant change to sit down this morning in a beautiful oak-panelled room lined with old leather volumes in the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons for a chat with Henry Fernandez, Chief Executive of MSCI. Henry, it's great to speak to you. Uh, Thank you very much for agreeing to do this podcast. How has COP been for you so far? It's been very busy, but very productive. I came Sunday night and uh, has pretty much been non-stop yesterday and uh, today, Tuesday. And uh, I have found in the private finance and investment sector, which is the area where we're focused on, a, quite a lot of optimism. Uh, and that has uh, been refreshing. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I didn't know if it was going to be a lot of despair, <laughs> but because of the uh, progress you know, that we have made uh, compared to the long, long journey ahead of us. Uh, but there is, uh, especially at this dinner that we hosted yesterday uh, or last night with uh, about 40 investors and banks and policymakers and some you know, energy companies. So it was an eclectic uh, group of, uh, of people. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised by the level of, uh, of awareness, initiatives, action plans, uh, an optimism that uh, that I saw there. Uh, I did not expect that. I expected a lot more sense of uh, daunting, you know, task ahead of us. But of course, you know, it's still a long journey. So, did you get the feeling that people are really starting to get ready to roll up their sleeves and get on with things? Well, there is there is a world of difference, world of difference in the last five, six years right? since, uh, since the Paris um, Agreement. I think what, uh, what we see generically you know, around the world is definitely a uh, realization by uh, a lot of us, you know, in individuals and households that climate change is real. I think all of us, one way or another, are experimenting that and experiencing that, whether it's the floods, that took place uh, here in the UK in the summer, whether it was the uh, heat wave that took place in the Pacific Northwest of the US and Western Canada, um, whether it's Australia, whether it's Turkey or Russia, the floods that took place in, uh, in China, you know, all over the world, there is a very stark realization that the climate is affecting uh, our way of life, is, um, is a clear and present danger to our way of life. And, uh, and I think therefore banks began to realize that they need to cut down on, on financing to, uh, to certain sectors. There, a lot of uh, asset owners are realizing that the, uh, 
this uh, process of decarbonizing and the effect on the reallocation of capital and the repricing of assets is happening already as the managers are beginning to put their portfolios on a more sustainable path, et cetera, et cetera. So one you know, smaller example is, you know, as you know, all these alliances have been created, whether it's the Asset Owner Alliance for Net Zero, the Net Zero Asset Manager Alliance, the bank, the insurance companies, et cetera. Uh, just in the Asset Manager Alliance, you know, there are 128 signatories to that alliance representing 43 trillion dollars of assets or about half of the professionally managed assets you know in the world today well talking about the asset management community obviously we have seen a lot of discussion recently about greenwashing and about how meaningful so a lot of the sustainable finance or things that are being sold as sustainable products are um, do you think that this is something that is an issue at the moment? The direction of travel is very positive, uh, for sure. Uh, but like anything, it's not a straight line. Uh, and uh, there is a massive education uh, effort uh, that is involved. There is also a lot of disclosure you know, that needs to happen for more clarity. Uh, what is it that um, individuals or institutions are, are truly buying? Uh, one uh, one example on ESG that I always uh, cite is that uh, you know ESG uh, funds and ESG investing is not only about picking only the ESG companies that have the highest uh, ratings. The vast majority of investment products are there are trying to balance a, a deviation from the market, you know, sort of indices um, and the risk of deviating dramatically and. You know what is called track and error or underperformance or overperformance, and uh, and selecting a lot of good ESG companies. So there is a lot of criticism sometimes. Then people say, you know, "This is a DSG fund, and we find found the, fo- the following oil and gas company. How could that possibly be?" Is because the constructor of that fund didn't want to simply not have any exposure to the energy sector. They wanted to have maybe a smaller exposure, but some exposure nonetheless. And in order to achieve that exposure, they needed to put an oil and gas company in there. So that doesn't make the the fund non-ESG. It's just a spectrum of how far you want to be from you know the market uh, indices. You know, if you were to decide on a portfolio of only uh, companies that do not carbonize uh, the world, it will be a very small portfolio. Mm. Well, you mentioned disclosures. That was something, obviously, I very much wanted to ask you about. And uh, particularly in the context of COP, I mean, everyone agrees that there needs to be a huge improvement in disclosures and standardisation and reporting. Do you think COP is going to get us any nearer to that? There is a big uh, initiative and momentum to, uh, to create a uh, public disclosure uh, of uh, carbon emissions you know, by companies. We at MSCI have been calling for uh, the uh, disclosure in, uh, in our case, publicly uh, listed companies of uh, the carbon emissions of those companies, the carbon emissions of their suppliers, and uh, and the location of uh, of a lot of their uh, their facilities, because uh, we clearly will want to take the uh, the disclosure of the companies, but we want to double check them you know, against uh, where their facilities are located 
and what kind of carbon emissions those facilities are having with a lot of geospatial data and things like that, right? So, um, so that's a, a big impetus that uh, and, a, and a big uh, recommendation on our part to uh, the regulators. Without data, without understanding of the facts as to what's the level of an emission of a company, uh, we're not going to go that far because uh, this is not a problem only uh, clearly of the current emissions. We know that they are high and unsustainable, but it's also an, uh, a problem of how do we build models on the data to project the trajectory of emissions uh, of issuers. So uh, so we at MSCI have not been waiting. You know, We have estimated the carbon emissions of 9,300 companies in our broadest index. We are already publishing that, uh, and we do it with estimates, you know, of uh, you know the, the size of revenues, the type of uh, business activities they have, the number of employees, the kinds of products they sell, where their facilities are located, in what countries, and all of that. So we use a series of assumptions to come up with a, a an estimate of carbon emissions. Are they going to be very perfect and precise? No. Are we going to be way off? No, most likely. So we're going to be within certain bands, but it will make our job a lot easier if we have public disclosure that instead of us creating the original data, we double check the data you know, provided by companies. So that is a necessary but not sufficient condition to, uh, to start on a, on a more sustainable journey to net zero. One other thing that's being talked about a lot more at the moment is potential regulation of ESG ratings, which obviously are in themselves becoming a more controversial topic. And I've had several people say to me that they think that ESG ratings will become obsolete, that asset managers will simply deal with their own data. I mean, do you think that um, ESG ratings have a future? And if so, is it a regulated future? So they, they let us... Uh make a very important distinction uh, between regulating the disclosure of the data that is the underlying uh, source of an opinion, which is a rating on one hand, uh, and then the opinion or the rating itself. Uh, I, at MSCI, we believe that uh, the argument is being misplaced where the regulation needs to come and the standardization needs to come is in the disclosure of the data. It will be a disservice to the entire investment industry global to have regulators and government officials dictating your opinion about the facts, your opinion about whether this is a uh, something that is going to create value or not create value for a company. Um, so therefore, we do not believe that ratings, you know, should be regulated in the same way that we don't believe that the government should be telling the media what to say, right? <laughs> what is clear is that the media should have the facts and then have an interpretation of the facts, but not uh, not have governments telling the media how to interpret the facts. Now, ESG ratings are not credit ratings. Credit ratings are largely unidimensional. You're taking the financial profile of a company, the cash flows, the, the debt as it relates to cash flow, the quality of those earnings, the quality, the, the, the leverage of the company, and all of that. And, and you're forming an opinion about that. Now, ESG ratings are multifaceted, multivariable. You have 
governance issues. Within governance, you have a number of issues. You have environmental issues, a lot of environmental issues. You have social issues that are very different social issues. So the question on the opinion or the rating is, do you want to end up putting 20% weight on the governance or 40% weight on the governance? Do you want to put 30% on the, on the environmental or 10% on the environmental or 60% on the environmental, depending on what your judgment is as to what will impact the value of that company and the value of those securities. So, so it, is, it is highly unlikely that ESG ratings are going to converge, you know, like uh, credit ratings, because the underlying variables that we're trying to judge are significant and people are going to have different views as to how to weight them. And that's perfectly fine because it creates a very rich environment for asset managers and asset owners to then look at various opinions and decide which one they want to take. Do you think sometimes perhaps people have just been a bit lazy and that they only they just want one top line number or letter to tell them what to do rather than actually having to dig into things? I don't think it's laziness at all. I, I think it is that um, this wave has hit people so fast and so hard that they are looking for ready-made answers. They're looking for quick ways to... Uh, to discern, you know, what is going to have more or less impact, you know, on a company. You know, these are very busy people analyzing already all the financial metrics and business metrics of a company. And on top of that, we're now putting ESG and climate metrics. Uh, You know, these are people that, for example, in the active management industry, in the stock picking, they're under a lot of pressure to perform because, you know, money is flowing out of active management and going into passive management. So they need to uh, outperform the indices. So, and they don't have enough hours in the day. So when when you get hit with something like this in a short period of time, they're looking for uh, quick answers. Uh, The fact of the matter is that this is a complicated topic there are a lot of variables that need to be taken into account and therefore there's no substitute but to uh, to do the work you asked me earlier whether uh, uh, portfolio managers are going to create their own systems and their own opinions and, and their own that they're not going to create the data they don't have the resources you know to replicate you know global sets of data like organizations like us do because we can sell it to pretty much everyone uh, they are not totally going to recreate all the models, but they're going to use those data and those models and then superimpose their judgment, just like they do today with, uh, with, uh, with sell-side uh, research. Okay, well, one other question I wanted to ask. We're talking about the proliferation of data, we're talking about the number of companies you cover. Now, I, until about a year ago, was covering emerging markets, was covering Central and Eastern Europe. And I know, for example, that in Central and Eastern Europe, MSCI doesn't cover uh, that many companies, um, nor do any of the other um, the big ESG rating companies, ESG data providers. And people are talking more and more about the possibility that emerging markets will be a bit potentially cut off from finance due to this lack of data, the, the growing data gap between emerging and developed markets. Do you see that as a problem and is it something you are trying to address? Actually. Yes, and I think it's the opposite. Uh, I think ESG and climate metrics are more important in emerging markets uh, than they are in developed markets um, because they potentially can represent um, a higher risk. 
you know, to the performance uh, of the company. So we know that, you know, governance in companies uh, generally is weaker in emerging market than it is in developed markets uh, because developed markets have been added for a longer period of time. Uh, you know, rules, regulations, pressure points and the like have been around for a longer uh, period of time. There are a lot of, a lot more checks and balances and, and the like. Um, similarly with environmental, uh, you know, re requirements. Similarly with social requirements. Um, there are a lot more pressure points about social issues in countries like France, UK, Germany, America than there are in some emerging markets in which some of the social issues are hidden or, or not addressed in terms of uh, equality of opportunities and quality, equality of employment. One case is point is woman, right? There are a lot of emerging markets in which women are not a big part of the labor, of the organized sort of corporate labor market. So, so therefore, if you think about, you know, issues that, uh, that affect the performance of that company, so think about a uh, woman, a company in an emerging market that develops, uh, it develops itself as a magnet for employment of women is going to have a major source of, of, of uh, talent that other companies may not have and may create a competitive advantage compared to a company in the West. Uh, I actually, in, in our uh, data set, we actually have a large uh, coverage of, um, of emerging market in our ESG ratings, large caps, small caps, large cap, mid caps and small caps actually it's been one of the most uh, you know prolific efforts on on our part clearly data is not abundant but but it is okay you know we uh, we, t we typically take more data from third party sources like uh, environmental agencies uh, especially in central and eastern europe one thing that has been a heritage of the uh, of the soviet uh, influence uh, communist regimes in Central and Eastern Europe is their knack for collecting data. <laughs> they love data. Everything is about, you know, you know every, there's always a report for everything. With a so, stamp on it always. Yeah, yes. with a stamp and the right signature. And if you, the signature is a little bit beyond the line, then it's not valid anymore. So, uh, so because of that, uh, you know, knack that they had an historical uh, element, if you are able to navigate through the process of capturing that data, tapping that data, uh, sometimes it's better data than in, in the developed markets. So, um, so we are taking advantage of, of that and, uh, and expanding, you know, significantly our coverage of, uh, local companies in, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe and, uh, and in other emerging markets. Okay, fantastic. Well, I see that we're running out of time and I said this would be a reasonably short interview. So just one last question. I'm going back to COP. That's what we're here for. What do, what do you think will be the most likely developments uh, over the next couple of weeks for, that would be relevant for MSCI? What will you be watching most closely? Well, there are, two tr there are a number of tracks, you know, in COP26. Uh, there's the geopolitical track with the heads of states and the pledges by countries and the aid to emerging markets and all of that. Uh, we're not in that track, right? You know, we're not in the energy track either or the natural resource track. Our track is finance, you know, finance and investment, which tomorrow is the finance day. Uh, and therefore, we're very focused on that. The, uh, the two or three things that we're hoping that we can achieve uh, uh, here is, uh, first of all, we have achieved already a great deal leading up to the... Um, the finance day, uh, a lot of it is, uh, has been under the incredible leadership of Mark Carney, uh, with the um, you know with the organization, the COP26 organization as, and uh, the G funds uh, organization. So 
Uh, and a lot of that achievement has been in the organization of the Net Zero Alliances, the Asset Owner Alliance, the Asset Manager Alliance, the bank, the insurance companies, etc. We are part and help create the Financial Service Providers Alliance, which is credit rating agencies, accounting firms, stock exchanges, derivative exchanges, index providers, uh, and all of that. And we already have 17 members. We just launched it about a month ago with 17 members. We're hoping that this week we're going to announce a few more uh, members you know, in that alliance. Now, being part of that alliance, you have a pledge that you will offer products and services that are going to lead to a net zero. So you're committing your reputation to, to do that. So, so what are we hoping to achieve in the finance track? Uh, first of all, we talked about this, uh, hopefully some uh, pronouncements uh, about the uh, direction of, of, uh, of data disclosure you know, by companies. Obviously that will have to be implemented country by country, but that will be a big achievement. A second one, uh, and I think Mark Carney is, uh, is working on something like this, to be able to have a system of creating more transparency and more disclosure about uh, the, uh, the company's carbon emissions, plus the companies that have pledged uh, net zero uh, and the detailed plans and things like that. So we need a lot more transparency in that. Also more transparency in what is called the implied temperature rise metrics, or, uh, or or alignment to the kind of world, uh, the kind of temperature world that that uh, that company is uh, aiming. So uh, we're hoping that that gets announced in the next couple of days. Uh, thirdly uh, and importantly, also is the uh, you know carbon uh, offsets, uh, carbon pricing, carbon uh, markets. Uh, that clearly is part of the geopolitical concept, but it affects directly the finance uh, ecosystem. And uh, we're hoping that. There is a, a way to standardize what is an offset that is valid, that is qualified, and what is not an offset. You know, there is a lot of greenwashing going on by people saying, I'm net zero because I went out and did the following, and that offset is not really a, a true uh, carbon capture offset. So uh, we need a lot more standardization there. We need a lot more definition of you know, uh, the, we don't want a war between countries, you know, on, on, on carbon uh, exchanges or carbon pricing and the like. So there is a lot more that needs to happen there. I, I don't think that we're going to end up with a, 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 a radical solution right now. Uh, I, uh, I, what I'm hoping for is that there is significant progress, you know, in this arena. Uh, somebody like Bill Winters from Standard Charter is actually working on this you know, directly and see if, uh, if he can make, uh, make progress on this carbon pricing and, and carbon exchanges and, and all of that. So we're hoping, you know, among, among the many things that we have achieved already, we're hoping those three things, which is data disclosure, um, carbon pricing, and more transparency on the, on the emissions of company over and above the data and the implied temperature rise of, um, of companies. Okay, fantastic. Well, yes, that, that would all be great. Let's hope we do get some positive outcomes over the next couple of weeks. Well, Henry, thank you very much indeed. It's been great to speak to you. Thank you.